So um, I feel my voice is a bit croaky. Um, just be happy, well, or be sad, it's up to you. Um, it could have been far croakier, but Birmingham City this afternoon were completely rubbish. They, were, they weren't just bad, they, they were rubbish. The nearest they got to the goal was they almost clipped the corner flag. So, um, yeah, so Hibs are the kings of Scotland versus England uh, today. But I want to tell you about something which is really... I, I wasn't surprised that Birmingham City are really rubbish because 60% of the time they are. They, they surprise you 40% of the time, but the normal thing is 60% of the time is Birmingham City nil. Anyway... I'm going to tell you something about something which has helped me rather than hindered me and my support of Birmingham City. So this is something which has helped me in the last 20, no, 12 months or so. Um, it's not my idea. It's an idea of uh, Richard uh, Raw from his book, Falling Upwards. Great book. Uh, well worth a read. Um, but please forgive me because I am not uh, like Richard Raw and able to explain things smoothly but I just want to describe it in a way in which has helped me uh, uh, this evening and how it's impacted me. And there's one idea which really has impacted me, and it's the idea of second life. Uh, I'm getting old, very old, actually, and I think that's why this idea has uh, really gripped me. I've always loved D.H. Uh, Lawrence's quote. If you've ever done Alpha, you might have heard uh, this quote. And he said, if only we can have two lives, the first in which to make one's mistakes which seem as if they had to be made, and the second in which to profit. So anything which is about second lives and about profit at the moment for me is very uh, helpful. So when I heard about Richard Raw's second life, I became all ears. Richard Raw says, humans, as far as I understand it, have a first life and a second life. Now the first life is the time in life where we're, we're working it out. It could be a time where we're particularly ambitious, where we're going for it. Uh, we're wanting to make a name for ourselves. We're wanting to create an identity. It might be a good identity or we might want to be hard and have a strong identity. But we'll be trying to sort of get to the top of our field, trying to make the impression we want to make. It's about achieving, it's about getting top marks, it's about getting promoted, it's about being recognised. And this is completely natural and normal. It is not, uh, and there's nothing wrong with this, it's part of what it means uh, to be human. There's nothing wrong in wanting to be your best. But as we mature, and as we start to understand that life is more than this, and there's a further journey uh, to enter into the second life, we start to see ourselves differently as we realise we can't control everything uh, around us. That life is a bit more complicated than we first felt. As we start to recognise the mistakes we've made, as perhaps we start to look back at failed relationships or broken loves or friendships, which have gone wrong, and they impact us, and they leave um, a mark. As we experience pain and loss, it's as if our horizons start to broaden, our thoughts about what's important shift, and rather than success and being recognised and being top of the tree and being well-liked, it's actually vulnerability and weakness and brokenness and those things that we have no power to control, which are important and define us. 
This is the focus of the second life. And the best lives are defined by vulnerability and moving through pain and moving through loss and uh, embracing brokenness. And it's in this space, this sort of dark space, this embarrassing space, which sometimes we want to hide, that God really moves, that somehow we discover the real healing power and peace and love of God, that despite everything, despite the mess of our lives, God chooses and wants to engage with that dark and rubbish uh, in our lives and isn't really actually that impressed by our successes. He likes it when we're successful, but it's not the thing that impresses him. So life becomes, if you like, a two-part journey, and both parts of this are important. But if we embrace the second life and don't ignore it, great power and great love is given to us. And understanding that the biggest thing we can do is by recognising our brokenness and sin and vulnerability, and letting God and others into this mess. Because when we enter into this journey, which is far more beautiful than we can ever imagine, because it's in this journey we experience God's love, God's healing, God's power. I like to think of it, we finally get to where Jesus is, and we finally get uh, what Jesus is really about It's not as if vulnerability and brokenness and sin become any easier to deal with. They are still painful, but it's just we don't ignore it. We use them to shape us and teach us. And somehow we accept that we are not the perfect beings which we like to project onto the world. It's a place where God exists and does his graceful work. And we see an explosion of second life forming in our reading which we've got today because hugely zealous and passionate and ambitious and learned and driven and active Saul or Saint Paul as we probably all know know him suddenly gets that everything he's worked for previously and strived towards before and being ambitious for is not where it's at all the people he's been trying to impress are not the people he should have been impressing. All the people he's been like making life impossible for and he's been bruising and imprisoning and persecuting and killing, they are actually the ones he should have been embracing. In a moment, the second life is held up in front of his face and in an instant, he transforms and leaves his first life. And the change in Saul or Paul or whatever you want to call him, the change in his life is incredible. It's almost impossible to believe, which is why this story of Paul meeting Jesus on the Damascus Road is one of the most famous ever. To speak of its shock, it's like this. It's sort of like, I was trying to think what it would be like in modern day uh, parlance to this event. It'd be like Donald Trump endorsing Hillary Clinton to be president. It would be like Nigel Farage suddenly getting up and holding a press sort of interview and saying, actually, I've made a huge error and mistake about Brexit and Europe. It would be like Nicola Sturgeon suddenly declaring, oh, actually, I'm a unionist now. Or it would be like a Celtic fan suddenly transferring allegiance to Rangers. Or it's probably more appropriately today, it's like Birmingham City actually being good. (laughs) You get it. It's It's extremely... Unlikely. What happened in this passage is unlikely, 
It's the type of thing which wouldn't happen. It's a shock. And sometimes, often, that's what the second life can be. It can be shocking. Because essentially, this passage is about the biggest opponent of Christianity becoming a Christian, a person whose job has, who ha, had been making life as difficult as possible for Christians becoming a Christian, a person whose uh, chosen life plan was to persecute Christians decides to become the persecuted, a person who didn't mind if Christians were stoned to death has every chance now of being stoned to death himself, a person who was the most zealous apologist of the Christian faith becomes the most incredible apologist of the Christian faith. An enemy of Jesus becomes a friend of Jesus. Paul, in these moments, completely changes. His values change. And that's another sign of the second life. What was important before is not where it's at now. It could be described, all of this, as mysterious. But that's what being a Christian is. It's mysterious and it can be curious. In this passage, the enigma of Christianity is on display. I would call it transformation, but any other words, many other words could be used to what's going on here. And all these words are mysterious words. They're words of Jesus and they're words which follow up, follow, uh, which sum up following Jesus. Let me give you some of these words because this is this passage. It's conversion, it's metamorphosis, it's about turning around, it's about renewal, it's about revolution, it's about a shift going on in the heart, it's an about face, it's an alteration, it's a change over it's a switch it's repentance it's new life and new starts and it's all here in what Paul is doing here and this enigma and mystery is still on display today we see it I see it in this room we've all got different stories we've got there's people in this room who are completely anti-Jesus and now they're pro-Jesus the atheist becomes a believer the most unlikely people suddenly become champions of God. The most anti-people end up being in God's corner. The most sinful people, the people who think the worst about themselves, are now delighting in the new life that God has given them. The people who think they don't deserve a thing from God, discovering actually they have everything because of God. The unlikely becoming the most likely. And that's the joy of Christianity. The first will become last, and the last will become first. And those you'd never expect to get the job end up with the job. I read this from Russell Moore, which I think helps us here, thinking about uh, who the future heroes of faith might be. And he writes, the next Billy Graham might be a drunk right now. The next Jonathan Edwards might be the man driving in front of you with the Darwin fish bumper to call. The next Charles Wesley might be a misogynist, profanity-spewing hip-hop artist. The next Mother Teresa might be a heroin-addicted uh, porn star this week. And he says the next Augustine of Hippo might be a sexually promiscuous cult member right now. Just like, he says, come to think of it, the first Augustine of Hippo was. But the thing is, God is a God who gives the second life. He can change everything if we're up for it, and that's what he seems to delight in doing. For some of us, this might happen in an instant. For others, it's going to take a bit of time and a bit of a transition and a bit of grappling with. 
God has an amazing ability to turn around that which is wrong, misinformed, deformed, anti-evil, sinful, arrogant, rude, shameful, selfish, lacking, out of control, deeply unhappy, unworthy and terrible into something which is just completely beautiful and right and hopeful and joyful. God can even transform because some of us sitting here might be this. I know I've been this on, on many times. God can even transform smugness, those of us who are sitting here thinking this has got nothing to do with me. God can even tr- transform that smugness, uh, that smugness of thinking everything is okay by suddenly making us vulnerable and enabling us to see our need for him. Everyone has a chance. Everyone has a possibility. And even the most unlikely and especially those of us who are in pain and who feel nobodies, and those who have mucked it up or chased after the wrong dream. The paradox of Christianity, it's not what we do right, but what we do wrong. That's the space where God exists. This is something many of us find hard to believe. God can transform the failures of life into something incredible for his kingdom. The great message of Jesus, of Christianity, is God chooses to work with those whose lives have gone wrong. And then he likes aiming them in a brand new direction. He chooses those with too much self-esteem, like Saul in our passage, and often also too little esteem, like many of us here in this room. And he chooses us, and he offers us the opportunity of life, or second life. He whispers into our hearts, and he's doing this tonight. He says life doesn't have to be this way. He whispers to all of us, there is a way back. He whispers simply, love. Jesus whispers into our hearts and says, my biggest failure of dying on the cross has become the most wonderful and incredible thing. So he says, give it all to me, all the rubbish, and I will deal with it. I'll heal it, I'll make it new, I'll transform it, I'll refocus it and recharge it. All he needs is for us to be honest and open and real. He's standing there and he's giving us signs and signals. He's giving us people around us to help us. And he's using the things about us to grab our attention, to get us to start on this journey and this new life. Now, God needed to get Saul in a certain way, a unique way, a way which would certainly get Saul's attention. You see, Saul was so fixated and blustering with powerful rhetoric, with a dark heart which wanted to destroy Christianity. Saul was so fixated in what he thought was he was doing God's will. Saul thought he was sticking to God's law, as written down by Moses, um, that Jesus, in fact, in this passage gives him a Moses-like experience. Because Jesus, in Acts chapter 9, is giving Saul a Shekinah glory moment. Just as Moses, his hero, had a Shekinah glory moment up the mountain when he went to get the commandments. Now, this word Shekinah is not a biblical word. You won't find it in the Bible. But it was an idea formed by rabbis over many years And Paul would have known all about it. Shekinah is the place 
the moment of God's presence and glory. And Paul, being the good Pharisee he was, who was really open to experiencing God and the amazing things of God, would have loved to have had a Shekinah moment. And Jesus shone so brightly for Paul, just as God's glory had shone so brightly for Moses that Moses' face shone so brightly that he had to put a veil over his head because it was too bright for anyone to see when he got down the mountain. Paul was so zealous, he was trying to be this mini-like Moses character, obsessed with following the commandments, thinking that was the best way to live his life, being legalistic and religious, that Jesus shone on him so brightly that Saul, in this moment, would never mistake that this must be a work of God. And a voice shouted out to Saul in this brightness. It said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It must have been a voice which horrified Paul. But also in Paul's response when he said, Who are you, Lord? Paul certainly thought this was a God experience he was having. And Paul must have been terrified when the voice declared that it was Jesus speaking telling Paul that he was persecuting Jesus himself. Jesus' pain with Saul is there for us all to see. The pain caused to Jesus when his followers are abused or persecuted is right there on this page. And in a moment, Saul would have realised, I'm actually in the wrong story. He would have thought, I'm involved in the wrong narrative. He had grasped onto the details of God rather than the reality of God. And his zealousness had turned him into the opposite of what God wants him to be. And Jesus decided to step in because the pain was too much for him. Remember, Saul was a passionate follower of God, like many of us here tonight are passionate followers of God. Saul thought he was doing God's will, like many of us here tonight think we're doing. And this is the thinking which caused extreme damage In his passion to do the right thing, he ended up doing the wrong thing. His first life thinking and his desire to demonstrate he was a top quality follower of God meant that he actually started to move away from God. His ambition became misplaced and his passion became evil. Paul's determination was that he was trying to impress the religious leaders rather than God. But he was about impressing others and gaining their approval rather than God. That's a first life issue. And despite good intentions, Paul had screwed up. And these first life issues still dominate today. We see it all around. It's the media uh, thing at the moment. Overzealousness is still forming groups like ISIS, um, who are destroying, sorry, ISIS is all about destroying and cutting down unless you believe the right thing. I think overzealousness is creating a situation in America where 70% of evangelicals say they are going to support the ultimate and narrow and most unself-aware first-lifer, Donald Trump, which seems completely odd when you read the Bible and its values, and then you look at Donald Trump and his values. A misreading of life has caused what happened in Munich last week and Nice the week before. In our lives, when we let power and ambition and getting to number one dominate, when we put ourselves first in order to get recognised and impress others, then we need to be careful. When we overly judge others to make ourselves look good, when it becomes all about me, 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 
We're missing something. In our first life state, Jesus is calling out to us today. And Jesus is shining brightly to us today. And he's trying to stop us in our tracks and get us to think about being involved in the second life narrative rather than the first life one. Jesus is inviting us this evening to get our second life going. It's Jesus offering us a personal encounter with him to recalibrate and rework out what is actually important. Key thing which is happening here is we see God seeks us out to bring him to himself. Another key thing that's been communicating in this Jesus moment for uh, Paul is no one is excluded from this. God saves, as I said before, the least likely. Because if God can save the persecutor Paul, then it makes sense to conclude that the least likely people like you and me can be saved. As Richard Raw says, the great and merciful surprise is that when we come to God not by doing it right, but by doing it wrong, Jesus turns everything on his head. And that sometimes is very difficult to get into your head. It's not by doing good you get saved. But knowing you are no good, it's, about impressing, it's not about impressing God, but letting his love and mercy impress us. I love what C.S. Lewis wrote uh, when he discovered, it, discovered all of this. He simply writes, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. So hard to get our heads around this. But the key to the second life is realising it's not about me, it's actually about God. And it's often when we're at our lowest ebb and most reluctant and most embarrassed, that's when we just have to give in. Now this moment was so intense for Paul, the transformation was so shocking, the realisation was so humbling, the brightness of life impacted on him so deeply that he was blinded. This great, big, passionate, go-getting man of God was brought low. He had met with Jesus, he was tr- the Jesus sorry, he was trying to eliminate, and in a moment realised that everything he'd been working for up to this point was not quite right. And so he was led by the hand to Damascus, and he entered into a time of praying and fasting. His second life had begun, and everything was being readjusted, and the blindness caused him to go deep into his self for three days because for three days it was just him and Jesus in that darkness. His blindness meant there were no distractions. It was just him trying to work it out, making sense of what had happened. Someone has said that this was the time where Paul surrendered his life to Jesus. And rather than it being all about Paul and how brilliant he was, Paul was going to live his life and give his all now for Jesus. Jesus said in Mark uh, uh, chapter 8, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And in these moments, Paul was giving himself over to Jesus and in that, in that process saving his life. And that's the challenge of the second life. That's what's happening to Paul and that's the secret to Jesus, living the surrendered life. As we know, this wasn't the end of Saul's life at all. It was actually the beginning of life, the second life. In surrendering to Jesus, Paul was given back his life and he went on to be the most incredible evangelist with the gift of storytelling second to none. He could talk about Jesus like nobody else could. And he spoke about it 
Jesus in such a way that other people couldn't help but surrender their lives to Jesus. This time last year, I was grumpy, I was angry, and I was anxious. And I'm not happy to tell you that I was trying to sort out my life in that most stupid way for a minister to do by ignoring God. But I had an encounter with a stranger, an unexpected encounter. And this stranger reminded me that the secret to life is living a surrendered life. Transformation, conversion, and encounter with Jesus are what a surrendered life offers. I was reading this week that Paul didn't decide to follow Jesus here. He didn't even make a commitment to Jesus here. No, he just surrendered his life to Jesus. And that's what Second Life is all about, surrendering our lives to this immense God of love and transformation and making it about him rather than about me. And God is here today and he's saying to us this evening, he's saying, I'm not wanting you to make a decision for me this evening. I'm not even really wanting you to have a conversion or convert this evening. What I want is a surrendered life. And in just a single moment, in just the blink of an eye, we can make that surrender. Or in a blink of an eye, we can take it all back for ourselves. Paul chose to surrender. And in doing so, he showed us how to make the best and most life-affirming, transforming and empowering decisions that are, that's possible for any human being to make.